Hello and welcome back to another episode of Listen to Less, your favorite podcast. If you haven't given me five stars, please do so. I'm about to start my period, so I'm going to cry if you don't, okay? So please give me five stars. All right, we are in season two. We're actually wrapping up season two. This episode and next week's episode will be the last seasons of, or last episodes of season two that has been surrounding weight gain. We are going to then shift gears into fertility. So this will be in one, two, two weeks from today, three weeks from today. Um, We're going to shift the conversation more so into fertility. We're going to talk about prenatal care. We're going to talk about your pelvic floor and why it's so dang important for you to actually use your pelvic floor and your deep core correctly. We're going to talk about prenatals. We're going to talk about infertility. What should you be doing now if you want to get pregnant in the next one to three years? I've been making a lot of content about this. Hint, hint, it's because I have a membership coming in the next couple of weeks that's going to be geared around the same conversations that we're going to be having in this season three fertility talk. Okay. We probably will, I probably will bring on people to discuss pregnancy itself and even postpartum, but most of the conversation is going to be about getting your body ready for pregnancy. So, thinking if you want to start a family in the next three-ish years, anywhere from like you're trying now to the next three years, what you should be thinking about, what you should be doing, what you should be working on so that you have the best experience possible for yourself. So that is coming up. We have today, we're going to talk um, about hormonal weight gain from insulin. Next week, uh, we are going to talk about hormonal weight gain from estrogen, and then we'll go into the fertility prep conversation. Okay. I do want to talk about one thing before we dive into the insulin conversation, which I'm sure you guys are just dying to know about insulin. Um, so I want to discuss skincare for a second, because if there has ever been a moment that you have saw me post about clear stem, the skincare brand I use, or you've seen me post my skin transformations and you're like, dang, I want that, or I want to try that, but maybe the products were a little bit out of your price range, or you just, it wasn't, it was Christmas. You're like, I've spent too much money. I can't, I'm doing no spend January. Well, today only my code gives you 22% off the entire site. My code normally gives you 15% off, which is still a couple bucks off. But today and today only, if you're listening on Friday, the 23rd, you get 22% off the entire site with my code. Okay. My code slash my link is in um, the show notes. So a little bit about my acne journey. because I want to tell you And if you don't care about acne, you don't care about skincare, you don't care about your skin health, you can skip forward a couple minutes. But I want to tell you a little bit about like why I like these products and why I've been using them since 2020 and I haven't stopped. And now most of what I use is clear stem. I use a different body or a different face wash in the shower that's not clear stem. And um, I think I have one serum that's not clear stem. And my makeup remover is not clear stem. Other than that, everything I use is clear stem. I've struggled with acne for a really long time. As most of you have known, you've, you've been through the ups and downs. It's gone away. It's come back. It, right now we're doing really good. We have been doing really good for the last couple of months. Um, but one thing that I kept doing 
incorrectly because a lot of acne comes from within. It's an internal issue expressing itself through your skin because our skin is one of our detox organs. So what your liver can't do, hint, hint, if you're constipated, your body's going to push stuff out of your skin. Okay. So if your detox pathways are plugged up, you've got gut issues, you've got hormone issues, you've got blood sugar and insulin issues that we're going to talk about today. Any of those issues, your your skin is going to detox. You're going to have acne. So a lot of it's internal, but the products you use externally do hold weight in your skin health. Okay. So I struggled for a long time, right? We know this. And I thought since I had oily skin, I needed to dry my face out more. So I was always using product. If it didn't say it was specific towards acne, I wasn't using it because I was like, I need something to dry my face out because I'm so oily. I then learned that that is only going to cause my skin to produce more oil because when you're you're dry, if you're trying to suppress the oil, then your body's like, we need more, we need more. This is a lot of times what happens when you get off birth control and you start having acne, even if you didn't have it before, because your sebum production is decreased um, during while you're on birth control and then you stop and the component that's decreasing your sebum is no longer there. So then your body starts overproducing it. Um, so that can happen to you if you get off birth control and have acne. So I was always using drying products. And then I also, because I had active acne, was always using serums and topicals, whether they were pharmaceutical or not, that were drying agents or targeted to kill things off, to dry things up, and to treat acne. And through this, I wrecked my skin barrier. So I was only using things that were actives and drying to dry my face out. And it it was making my skin worse. Like my skin never looked glowy. It always just looked dull and it would be peeling, but also oily at the same time. And I just had all of these small blemishes that just wouldn't go away, even though I addressed my gut and hormones. So I didn't have a lot of cystic acne, but I had all these like tiny breakouts all over my face. At one point I even did try tretinoin, which is a very high potent, form of a retinol, retinoid. Um, this was a disaster. It made my skin purge like crazy. I later learned that tretinoin will actually lead to indefinite purging because of how harsh it is on your skin. It also makes your skin extremely sensitive to sun and the light. So if you're some like if you go on a walk, even though it's gray outside, you're, you need to be covering your skin up if you're using this because it makes your skin so sensitive. Um, and it has one of the worst pore clogging ingredients in the, in tretinoin, in the, the, not the gel, but the, um, the cream one, the white one, which is what I had been using. I'm going to try to say this ingredient, but I may say this incorrectly. It's called isopropyl muriatate isopropyl muriatate. It's one of the worst pore cloggers. And what that means is there are certain ingredients, which by the way, even if something says it's non-comedogenic, meaning it doesn't clog your pores, they can still have pore clogging ingredients in it. Okay. Pretty much anyone can put that label on there. Um, so it can have this ingredient or it has this ingredient in the tretinoin. And what that means is it goes into your pores when you're cleaning your face, you're using um, something powerful to get into your pores. And then this ingredient actually clogs the pores and then you can't get it out and it causes more acne. It causes more inflammation because it goes deep in that pore. So you may see more cystic type stuff or stuff that's just really red and inflamed. Um, 
And it's because it's one, a really harsh product, but two, you're, you're covering your face in a horrible pore clogger. Okay. So that's not good. So when I was using this product, my face was purging like crazy. And then I started having all of these scars, even though I wasn't picking my face felt, I was like, my face is more scarred now than before I started using this. And I tried it for a good three months before I was like, okay, I can't go longer. Like online, I kept seeing people say, just wait it out, wait it out. The it's worth the wait to get to like the eight month mark of using this. When your skin finally starts to look better. I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. My skin shouldn't have to purge this much just to look better. It's making my skin look worse. I'm scarring. My face is peeling. It's so dry. It just looks dull. Like I look gray. I don't look good. So I stopped using that and I started educating myself on my skin barrier and realized I was just being way too harsh with my skin. So now that I focus much more on my skin barrier, one thing I do is I do use my red light on my skin at least five times a week for a minimum of 20 or a minimum of 15 minutes, maximum of 25 minutes. Um, and then this is the skincare routine I use through clear stem. So every morning I use the gentle cleanser. I, I do best with the gentle cleanser. I used really harsh exfoliants for way too long. So in this season of my life, I'm trying to be way more gentle with my skin and just rebuild the hydration and that skin barrier um, so that it, I'm less inflamed. So I use a gentle cleanser. In the morning, I follow my gentle cleanser up with the bounce back serum, which is great for skin barrier repair. Um, I love this serum. They also call it their no Botox serum because it helps to stimulate more collagen. And it also helps to just reduce the inflammation of your skin to then help give you a more plump look. Um, and then I, after the bounce back serum, I use the Hydra Glow Moisturizer. This moisturizer is very thin and silky, but it gives you a very glowy look. Um, there's no fragrance in it, but just from some of the extracts that are in it, it smells so dang good. So does the bounce back serum. It smells so good, even though there's no artificial fragrance in any of their products. Love it. Um, so that's what I use in the morning. It's very simple, just basically hydration, hydration. And then at night, I all, well, I should add, um, I do use their, their um, sunscreen as well if I'm going to be outside. At night, I also use the gentle cleanser. And then I follow up the gentle cleanser with their product called Clarity. This helps with scars, which I have a lot of scars um, from just tons of acne over the years. And it helps to unclog pores and get rid of acne and blackheads in a very gentle way through one of the acids in there compared to using something like a tretinoin. So you do need to leave it on for about 10 minutes before putting anything else over it. Um, because if you put something else on top of the clarity serum right away, it will kind of neutralize the effects of it. So you need to leave it on your skin for at least 10 minutes without anything else. So I usually wash my face, put this on before I make dinner, make dinner, have dinner, and before I go to bed, I put the Hydraberry Moisture Mask on. Because it's been more dry in winter, I do use this. It's a mask you can use that you can take, put on and take off, or you can wear it as just your main moisturizer if you need a little bit of a thicker moisturizer. So I do wear this one to bed. It's like 80 degrees today in Texas though, so I think winter is over, and I will probably start using 
the, um, the Hydra Glow moisturizer that I use in the morning, both morning and night, because I don't need as much moisture during the summer and spring months. Okay. And then if I am around my period and I do get one or two like inflamed bumps or cystic type pimples, I use their sulfur spot treatment and I leave that on overnight. Also, if I'm feeling very oily, you can leave this on as um, a little bit of a drying mask, but it works differently than a lot of the other drying products. So it's much more safe and gentle on your skin to use. And I don't see the irritation like I would from using like a tretinoin when it dries my skin out. Okay. So I'll use that, um, sometimes on my T-zone if I'm feeling extra oily or I just leave it on, um, more red and inflamed and it does, it is a purple color. Um, so it will kind of, what am I trying to say here? It will blend, like you can put it on, you don't have to rub it in all the way. And then you could put makeup on over it and it neutralizes that red so that your, um, your makeup can cover the zit a little bit better if you're going, you're using it like in the morning. So these are some of my favorite products. These are the products I use in my skincare regimen every day. If you want to try them out, or if you just you've been using them, but you need some refills. Today is the day to order. Um, I'll put my link for the 22% in the show notes, and I hope that you try it. And if you do, you should post it on your story and tag me in it so that I can celebrate the new coming clear skin you're about to have. Okay, let's jump into why insulin makes you fat now. Last week, we discussed a lot about blood sugar slash blood glucose. So that is going to play into our discussion today. So let's recap that quickly. Blood glucose, remember if I say blood sugar and blood glucose, I'm the same thing, using those interchangeably. Blood glucose is the broken down form of carbohydrates in your body, in your bloodstream, okay? So you eat carbs, they break down into simple sugars, they go into your blood, and then they are called your blood sugar levels or your blood glucose levels, okay? So before we get into the science, I want to give you the symptoms that you might experience if you you struggle with blood sugar or you struggle with insulin so that you know, oh, I should keep listening. Extreme hunger no matter how much you eat, lots of cravings, lots of sugar cravings, inflammation, just feeling really puffy, kind of having that moon face, um, feeling very inflamed, um, fatigue, fatigue or feeling very tired after you eat, sometimes to the point of needing a nap, specifically after you eat a meal with carbs, difficulty concentrating if you have ever been diagnosed with PCOS, slow wound healing, frequent thirst, no matter how much water you drink, you're just always thirsty. And then paired with that frequent urination, even if you don't drink a lot of water, you feel like you have to go to the bathroom a lot. Those are all symptoms of dysregulated blood sugar or insulin resistance. And then even if you often feel hangry and you get, you feel hangry a lot, like you most of your days you get to a point where you feel hangry, you feel nauseous, you can't think straight, um, and you have a lot of these symptoms like difficulty concentrating, panic, um, things like that when you don't eat and you're just very, very, well, not, not when you don't eat, but when you, it's only a couple of hours since you ate and you start freaking out and your body cannot handle going only a couple of hours without food, Okay. So we discussed how your blood sugar last week is supposed to go up after you eat. After you eat a meal, your blood sugar will go up, especially if you eat 
any, any form of carbohydrates, I'm talking any form of carbohydrates, they break down into sugars and your blood sugar goes up. That's a normal response. That's not bad. Okay. But after two hours, two hours post that meal, your blood sugar should come back down to whatever your fasting level was. We talked last week about how your blood sugar fasting level should be between a 75 and a 90. And if it's above that, you really need to keep listening today. Okay, so if blood sugar stays elevated beyond two hours or your fasting blood sugar levels are too high, this can mean that your blood sugar isn't getting into the cells like it should be. Okay, so our blood sugar, our carbs that we eat are the body's preferred mechanism for energy. Your body prefers blood sugar to for energy as opposed to fat or protein. So when we eat carbs and our blood sugar goes up, then what happens is insulin is then pumped out from your pancreas. Insulin is a hormone. And think of insulin like the taxi and blood sugar is like the passengers. So the passengers are in your blood and then all of these taxis, all of this insulin is released because there's a lot of people that need rides, okay? So think of it like the taxi line at an airport. And this insulin comes and it picks all this blood glucose up. And some people, some blood glucose is going to your muscles, some's going to your brain, some's going to your kidney, some going to your liver, some's going to your red blood cells, some's going to other tissues, other organs that need it, need energy to keep keep you alive, right? Um, and whatever's left over, like if your brain, your muscles, your liver, all of these, they're like, okay, we're full. We don't have any more capacity for any more passengers here. Then the rest of the glucose that's left over gets turned into something called triglycerides. You may be familiar with this term. If you've ever had your cholesterol or a lipid panel tested in blood at the doctors, you may have seen your triglyceride level in there. Okay. So what triglycerides are, are they're just fats, but insulin will take the leftover blood sugar that can't get into cells anywhere else. And it will turn it into fat to be stored either in your liver or in your fat tissue. Okay. So what can happen here when blood sugar is constantly too high, or you have too, too high of blood sugar from post meal or just all of the time, this can happen from eating too many processed carbs, too many refined carbs, eating carbs without fats, proteins, fibers, and having a lot of stress. Well, what happens then is that the body continues to pump out insulin in an effort to get the glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells. Well, when insulin is too high all of the time because we're pumping out all of these taxis because there's so many passengers, well, your body actually starts, your body, those stores for those passengers to go to, they're full. They can't take any more people. They're, the hotels are booked. I'm booked. The hotels are booked. So these passengers have nowhere to go. So, but your body keeps trying to put them in these hotels, but, so, and it does so by pumping out more and more insulin at the point where the hotels, they just, and the passengers, they just ignore the taxis. They're like, there's nowhere to go. I see you on the street, but all the hotels are booked. So I'm just going to sit at the airport because there's nowhere for me to go. That's kind of like what is happening with your blood sugar and your insulin. Okay. So what happens is 
the insulin, the taxis are like, okay, I'm going to take you somewhere. So I'm going to turn you into triglycerides and I'm going to store you as fat because your muscles are full, your brain's full, your liver's full, everything else is full, but there's still so much blood sugar. I need to get it out of here somehow because too much blood sugar leads to disease. So your body keeps pumping out insulin. And then the insulin turns the blood sugar into triglycerides, which AKA is fat stored in your fat cells. Okay. So you can actually see this happening if you've ever gone to the doctor and they've done blood work on you. Um, and they look at your cholesterol panel on blood work. This panel will have your total cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol, your HDL cholesterol, and your triglyceride levels. There might be a few ratios, but those four are the main metrics you'll be looking at. Okay, so you can see your triglyceride level. If you have a high triglyceride level above 150, this is a sign that you are headed towards, or if it is above 150, you could even get the diagnosis of prediabetes. This can then lead to metabolic syndrome and then eventually type 2 diabetes, which we don't want you to get to that point, okay? Now, the Western range is above 150. Preferably, I'd like to see it a little bit lower. Like, I don't want to see you at 140, but you're still pretty dang close. So let's try to keep this in a healthy range, okay? So the thing is, most people think that triglycerides, because triglycerides are a fat, they think, oh, it's because I'm eating too much fat in my diet or the classic, oh, I need to remove eggs from my diet. But this is a classic case of don't blame fat for what sugar is doing, okay? Your triglycerides are high, most likely because your insulin is too high. Your insulin is too high because your blood sugar is too high. Unfortunately, most doctors don't test fasting insulin. I always look at fasting insulin because guess what? Your insulin is going to go up before your triglycerides go up. So let's look there first because people will be like, oh, your cholesterol is fine. Your triglycerides are below 150. There's no need to look at your insulin. Well, you're having symptoms Things, you're very puffy, you're not losing weight, you're really you're actually packing on the pounds, even though you're working out, you feel like you're eating healthy, and things just aren't working out for you, and you're like, what the heck is happening? Well, let's look at your insulin first, okay? Now, I like to see insulin, fasting insulin, between a five and a seven. Well, most Western medicine ranges allow insulin to go up all the way to a 29 because once you hit a 29, they can diagnose you with prediabetes and then they can give you medication to lower insulin instead of referring you to a nutritionist like myself to change your diet and lifestyle to get your insulin down. Now, I'm curious, where did this insulin level, where did it used to be? Because with Western lab ranges. The reason if you go to someone like myself or someone else in the functional world, you will see a much more narrow range is because we're looking at optimal ranges. Whereas over the last 50, 60, 70 years with the decline in health among Americans, the lab ranges you see are the average of Americans that walk into the doctor. Okay, so lab ranges change in the Western world, Western medicine world all of the time to accommodate what the average Joe walking into a doctor's office, what their levels are. It doesn't mean it's healthy. For example, different topic, my uh, 
my dad, he's been checking out his testosterone levels lately and they have hit his, the value for the lab he went to said that 200 is a normal, normal testosterone level for a man. That is so low. That is so low. No man at a 200 testosterone is going to feel good. They're going to feel horrible, but guess what? We know because of all of our food, because of the rise in vaping and alcoholism and just alcohol being normalized. So people are binge drinking without it being labeled as alcoholism, our food, the hormones that are, um, you know, women are taking birth control. Well, we detox those excess hormones. We detox excess estrogen and we have bowel movements, we pee, and it goes into our water system. Yes, that stuff's cleaned out, but hormones are in our water. Hormones are in our food. Like there's hormones, all there's a lot of estrogens in our world nowadays that were not in our world before. And men were seeing much lower sperm counts and much lower testosterone levels over the last 40 years to the point where I've seen articles that say, and I, these are just things I've seen online. I, I haven't looked into the validity, validity of this, but they're saying that by a certain point, are we going to have men with any sperm at all because of how rapidly it's declining over the last several decades because of how much estrogen is in our systems, both male and female. This is why women we start, we're starting to see kids start their periods as early as seven, eight, nine years old. Like that shouldn't be happening. Right. But side to this is, you know, I'm on my soapbox right now, but you see these lab ranges change because of what the average person comes into a doctor's office. So we know testosterone is on the decline in men. Well, their lab ranges are obviously showing that decline as normal because that's what what's normal for most Americans. That's not what's optimal. So back to insulin, we have a norm. Technically, it's normal to have a level of 29 fasting insulin, but you go up one point and then they can diagnose you with prediabetes. Do you want to let yourself go up to a 29 to where you're just on the border and like the next time you go to the doctor, they can label you with diabetic? Probably not. So let's go back to the optimal range when Americans were healthier, which was around a five to a seven. Okay. So let's try to get it there. And this is very, this is very normal to have that level. My, that's around where my insulin is. That's where a lot of my clients after working together, their insulin is. That's not like so far off. That's You just have to make some sacrifices, which they're not really sacrifices. They're just deemed sacrifices in this world we live in because of the way that our health system is and the way that our food system is. It's looked at as eating and living healthy is looked at as a sacrifice, but it's really not. It's just, it's just what you should be doing if you want to live a healthy and a long life. So I digress, but here's the thing. I'm going to go on another soapbox here, another side tangent about medications to lower your insulin and to lower your blood glucose. Because here's the thing, you may be listening to this and think, oh, well, if this is me, I need to be on something like a semi-glutide, like an Ozempic. Or there's another medication that is often used um, for lowering this is metformin. Okay. Sure. These medicines work to get your insulin down so that you can lose weight 
easier. They address your high insulin, which then addresses your high blood sugar, addresses your high triglycerides. And then in doing so, weight starts to come off. Okay. Well, depending on if you're on a semi-glutide or a metformin, semi-glutide often, or that will also suppress your hunger. So then you're eating like I've seen even had people admit to eating less than a thousand calories when they're on this. I've worked with clients that are on semi-glutide and I'm not judging by any means. I'm just giving data here. If you don't fix your lifestyle that led you to have high blood sugar or high insulin and dysregulated blood sugar, if you don't address your nutrition and your lifestyle and start looking at those changes as not sacrificial, but just this is how a healthy person lives. And this world we live in is just so unhealthy that I'm going to feel like I'm sacrificing, but like truly you're not. If you don't adjust your nutrition, your activity level and your lifestyle, then when you get off of these medications, your appetite is going to come raging back and you're not going to have any of the work done to change your relationship with food, figure out why do you binge eat, which did an episode on that a couple episodes back. If you do struggle with that, highly suggest you go listen. You're not going to have proper nutrition habits. You're not going to be eating, know how much protein you should be eating, how much fiber you should be eating. You're probably still not working out because I do know a lot of people that have taken semi-glutide. They don't work out because they're, they're barely eating. So they can't work out. They feel dizzy at the gym. It also comes with a lot of side effects that affect your GI health, your stomach health. Um, so it's just, there's a lot of side effects to, in this med- these medications, you essentially need to stay on them forever if you don't want to gain the weight back, especially if you're not going to change your lifestyle. There's multiple studies that have come out in the last six months to a year that show that people do gain the same amount of weight plus some back after they stop these medications, even if they've made some improvements to their lifestyle, because the medication, it's a medication works very rapidly and your body cannot keep up with the changes that's happening. So you need to actually work on, even if you are going to take this to assist with your lifestyle changes, you really need to work on lifestyle changes alongside taking medications like this, or else you're going to gain it back when the, when you stop. Okay. So, um, I'm going to talk a little bit towards the end of this episode, which I'm almost done here. Um, we're about to go into like things to do to fix this, but I'm going li- to link two supplements that can be helpful that actually have proved to work better than metformin um, in lowering blood sugar and be- helping you to become more sensitive, insulin sensitive. So stay tuned for that. Um, let's talk about the PCOS factor for a second. Majority of PCOS cases are driven by poor blood sugar and high insulin. It's astonishing to me when I have a PCOS client come in and their doctor never tested insulin to see where they were, where they were at in the first place. Um, a lot of times if you have, I mean, majority of PCOS cases, not all, but majority of PCOS cases that have high testosterone, it is your testosterone is being driven up by high insulin levels, which comes from dysregulated blood sugar. So if you have a positive PCOS diagnosis, I would highly suggest that you get a glucose monitor to check your glucose daily in the morning, but also get your insulin checked your fasting insulin and a lipid panel checked to look at your triglycerides at the doctor so that you can 
kind of see, okay, what is, it may not be a full root cause, but it is peeling at least one or two layers of the health onion back to see why is your testosterone high in the first place? Because in order to get that testosterone down, you need to address your blood sugar and your insulin or else that testosterone is not going anywhere soon. So what should you do? How do you fix it? First and foremost, the obvious, eliminate refined sugars and refined carbohydrates, okay? So this is going to be things like your candy, your sodas, your pops, your uh, like sugary beverages, your, um, your pastries, danishes, things like that. Now, people always say, ask about bread. When it comes to bread, if you're getting a quality sourdough, maybe you're making it fresh or you're getting it from the farmer's market, you're getting a whole grain bread. This is okay in moderation because it's processed a lot differently. But I don't think bread should be your only carb source. Like I love a good sandwich. I had a sandwich for lunch today from some sourdough bread. But bread shouldn't be what you're eating all of the, like every three meals a day, okay? So eliminate the refined sugar and carbs. Now, what do you replace that with? Complex carbs that contain fiber. So this is going to be your rice, quinoa, potatoes, oatmeal, and your produce, meaning fruits and vegetables. I love all fruits and vegetables. I don't think any fruits and vegetables should be avoided unless you have a sensitivity or an allergy to them. This could also be things like beans and legumes if you tolerate them. Um, fun fact, if you soak them, so like don't, if you don't buy it from a can and you actually buy fresh whole beans and then you soak them for several hours, you may actually be able to digest them better. Okay. Number three, always eat fat and protein or fat or protein with your carbs. Don't eat carbs alone. So if you're going to eat a carbohydrate, make sure that you have some fat or some protein with it because fat and protein help lower blood sugar. So this helps to not have such a drastic spike of blood sugar and it helps to keep your blood sugar in balance and then come down into that normal range two hours postprandial or post-meal post like we talked about earlier. Exercising and activity. If you have high insulin, high blood sugar, one of the easiest ways to help your body become more insulin sensitive is to exercise, more specifically weightlifting, not necessarily cardio. Building muscle here is what I'm talking about, okay? So think of your where your cells and the organs, like your brain, your liver, your muscles, that we talked about, the, the glucose has to go to them. They're the hotels that store the passengers, remember? That's where your blood glucose is going when it gets out of your bloodstream. Think of those as huge buckets for glucose to fall into, okay? If you're not working out and you're not lifting weights or doing some sort of resistant training to build muscle, you are eliminating the largest buckets that you could. There's muscle all over your body. So if you are working out and you are building muscle all over your body, you are creating these huge glucose buckets that this glucose can go into. If you're not exercising, you're only hurting yourself. And it's one of the ways that you could easily get your blood sugar and your insulin in check. 
beyond just weightlifting, just be more active in general. Sedentary lifestyle is one of the leading risk factors to having diabetes and insulin resistance. So get up and get walking. If you work from home, get a walking pad, walk while you're working. If you like go walk at the gym, get walking outside, walk, walk, walk. I've been watching this documentary um, on the blue zones, which is where the average population in these zones around the world live to be centarians, meaning they live to be a hundred years or older. And the most, the common, like all of these places are very different and have different diet. They have different lifestyle. But one thing that's very common between all of them is they're walking. They're not in the gym lifting weights, but they are walking. They're walking everywhere. And we are so sedentary as Americans because we want to scroll our phone. We want to watch TV. We want to just lay down and do nothing. We've become so lazy. We've probably become lazy because of our food sources making us be insulin resistant, which makes us tired. But if you can get up and just be more active in general, it's going to help you. Something else you can do to help lower blood sugar after meals is walking slowly after meals or just moving your body. I wouldn't go on a brisk walk. I wouldn't go on a run. Like don't go exercise right after you eat. That's a whole nother, another conversation. We'll probably get a stomach cramp, but go on a slow stroll or even save the dishes or chores or cleaning up the kitchen for after you eat because movement after a meal helps to excuse me, helps to shuttle the glucose to your cells versus being sedentary post-meal. Okay. We've got three more bullet points here. Give yourself three to four hours between meals so your glucose can come back down, but don't go too long to where you're getting hangry and your blood glucose is dropping too low. Okay. So, cause if your blood sugar drops too low, that's going to stimulate cortisol production and we don't need us getting stressed out even more than we are. But this is something called grazing we want to avoid. I want you to eat solid meals. I don't want you to snack all day long. If you're snacking all day long, then that can actually increase your, well, that can keep your blood sugar and your insulin increased because you're never allowing yourself a break between eating for your uh, glucose and your insulin to come back down and go back down to your fasting range. So make sure you're having meals, but not snacking like every single hour. I would give yourself maybe three to four hours between your meals and just make sure your meals are of a decent size to hold you over between them, okay? If you're starving, if you're like, oh my gosh, it's only been two hours, but I am really hungry, go ahead and eat. Your body's telling you you're hungry for a reason. You don't have to. It's like, that's one of the things I hate about intermittent fasting is why tell yourself you can't eat till one if you're starving by 10 a.m. and then you're just, you feel horrible because you're waiting two hours to eat just because you said so. If you're hungry, eat, but don't just like, don't just snack all day, have actual meals. All right. Number seven, eat within one hour of waking and stop eating about two to three hours before bed. This will help with your blood sugar as well, especially like on the topic of intermittent fasting. I prefer people to eat breakfast and stop eating earlier in the evening versus waiting to eat until like one and then going until 10 p.m. eating. Let's, if you're gonna do intermittent fasting, I'm not a huge fan of it, but if you're going to do it, shift it so you eat breakfast within an hour, but cut off your dinner earlier, okay? 
And then lastly would be supplements that can help with high insulin, but you, I do not want you to take these supplements if you're not, if you're just going to ignore steps one through seven that I just said. You need to be doing steps one through seven while you're taking supplements for this to work. They're not like a semi-glutide medication where you can just literally sit on your ass, take the medication, and it just helps you lose weight. You need to actually do the work if you want to get healthier. And even if you're on something like a semi-glutide or a metformin, you should be implementing steps one through seven so that when you get off that medication, you actually can maintain the results or you can get off the medication and don't have to be on it the rest of your life, okay? So the two supplements that I'm going to tell you about, they are linked in my dispensary, which is in the show notes. Um, this is through my dispensary online that I use with all of my clients, which has quality supplement brands. Um, I'm putting this instead of an Amazon link because you actually get 10% off um, if you order through my dispensary, which if I give you an Amazon link, you have to pay full price. So I'm going to put it there. You do have to sign in and make an account, but once you sign in and make an account, an account. You can order anything through my dispensary and know that it's quality brands that I suggest and get 10% off um, whenever you do order. So if you want to make an account, you can go ahead and do that with that link in the show notes. The two supplements I'm going to talk about are inositol and berberine. Now, inositol helps more so with insulin, whereas berberine helps more so with blood sugar. So if you're someone that tends to have higher blood sugar, you can take berberine with meals. Um, and then you can take inositol on an empty stomach. I take um, one scoop in the morning, one scoop at night when I'm suggesting it to clients. Um, and berberine, I usually have people take one capsule of 500 milligrams with two different meals throughout the day. If you tend to have lower blood sugar, I would only take the inositol and not the berberine um, if you have high insulin, but you don't have high blood sugar. Okay. Now, in studies, these used together, um, working in combination, actually yielded better results than metformin alone. So that is pretty cool evidence to show that these are more natural substances that can help versus a pharmaceutical. Um, so the link is in my show notes. But once again, make sure that you are following everything else that I said in this podcast while taking these if you actually want sustainable results and you want to be able to stop the supplementation and live your life healthily and at a healthy body weight um, and have a really healthy life, okay? So that is it for today on why insulin can cause you to gain weight. Come back next week. We're going to talk about why estrogen could make you gain weight or make it difficult to lose weight. And then after that, we're going to jump into the fertility conversation. So just a reminder, today is the only day you can get 22% off ClearStem products with my link. So make sure that you check that link out and go try something. Like I swear by this, I have been affiliated with them for the last six months. I've been using ClearStem since 2020. So I you could I love the I love their products. I've loved them well before I became affiliated with them. And it's one of the only brands that I've actually freaked out when they asked me to become an affiliate because I love their brand so much that I just I'm like so excited to be affiliated with them. I've actually asked them for a part-time job because I just love their company, their mission, and their products so much that I want to be more involved than just have a discount code with them. So try it out. I love you guys. And we'll talk more next week.